You are listening to the Sermons Podcast of First Baptist Church, Mount Washington. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 12. Romans chapter 12. I appreciate Ben filling in on the piano today. Uh, some of you may know Mike. A uh, man had uh, back surgery uh, and he is uh, resting at home, and uh, so it's good to have uh, uh, Ben play with us, have folks that can step up and do that. We appreciate him. also want to ask you to remember Drew Lindman in your prayers. Drew works with our, our young adults. Drew's father is uh, ill and hospitalized up in Michigan, and uh, Drew has gone up there to be with his family uh, for this time, and so remember uh, his dad, uh, Drew's dad, and, and also Drew and his family uh, in your prayers, if you will. Romans 12 today, we're going to look at verses 3 through 8. We uh, talked about last week, verses 1 and 2, about that uh, massive therefore in view of God's mercies there in verse 1, how that marks a new section and, and uh, Paul's letter reminds us that the gospel that he has been laboring to explain for chapters 1 through 11 uh, that this gospel should have a profound impact on our lives. And uh, if we believe that is what Paul has said, that we've been given new life in Christ, then we will behave differently. We will, as verses 1 and 2 say, we will offer our bodies as living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, and will be transformed by the renewal of our minds. And so Paul is saying there that someone who has come to know Christ as Savior and Lord, they will not remain the same, but, but rather they will be different. They will be transformed, beginning with a new mind, he says. Uh, new desires to please God, new desires to worship God, to follow God, to live for God. Um, and this transformation is, is not, uh, it doesn't just stay inside, it begins to come out of our lives, and it will also transform our relationships with one another, how we look at one another, how, how we interact with, with one another. And notice how Paul turns to that now in Romans 12, beginning in verse 3. He says, For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another, having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who, acts of, who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for your word this morning, and uh, we pray that you would open our hearts and minds to it, our eyes to see, our ears to hear. Lord, we 
we ask that you would instruct us by your Spirit, through your Word, that we might be transformed uh, by the renewal of our minds for your glory. And I ask, Lord, that you would use me today in this. I pray that you would increase and I would decrease and your Word would go forth. And I pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. One of the fundamental differences of Christianity and, uh, versus other religions is that in, in Christianity, the, the message is not that you, you decide one day that you're going to take up the morals and the ethics of Jesus and then just live those out in hopes that one day uh, God will save you because of your good intentions and your good effort at, at living out those, those teachings. That's not Christianity at all. The Christian life begins with salvation, and it flows, out of that flows a transformed life. In other words, when you put your faith in Christ, you are changed from the inside before you are on the outside. It begins with justification, Paul talked about in Romans 6, when God declares you righteous based on the righteousness of Christ and your faith in Him. And immediately you are given salvation as a gift. And from that time, slowly you are transformed outwardly. This is the process called sanctification, uh, when you are being transformed into the likeness of your Savior, Jesus Christ. And now Paul has reminded us of this in verse 2. He says this transformation comes by the renewal of the mind. And it reminds us of the beginning point here when we're talking about the Christian faith. Christianity is a whole new thought process. It's a a whole new way of thinking that, that can only happen when God renews your mind. Renews your mind. Turn over to Romans 1 for a moment. Um, just as a reminder, I know it seems like such a long time ago, but it's really not that far away, Romans 1, um, because Paul addresses uh, this idea of the mind right from the beginning of his message to the Romans. He, he talks about how there's a big difference between the regenerate mind, that is a saved person's mind, and the unregenerate or the unsaved person's mind. Follow along As Paul writes there in verse 18, he says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So, they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him. But notice His words here. They became futile in their what? In their thinking. Futile in their thinking. And their foolish hearts were darkened, and claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. What's he reminding us here? He's saying to us, when we were still in our sins, before we were saved, we were among those who suppressed the truth. 
We, we ignored it, willfully ignored it, and that by nature we were, we were truth deniers, if you will. We may have said that we were searching for it in some way, but in fact we were ignoring the truth. He says, verse 21, for although they knew God, they didn't honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking. It wasn't just that we didn't know the truth, we didn't want to know the truth. We refused to know the truth that was before us, the truth of, of God. And a more, the more a person refuses to know the truth about God and about sinfulness before Him, the more their thinking will become futile. He goes on to explain that, verse 24, uh, uh, some of the results, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves. Look at verse 26, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committing shameless acts with men. Look at verse 28. Here's where this is leading to. God gave them up to a debased, what does he say? Are you all with me? Amen. Mine. A debased mind to do what ought not to be done. And the list that follows there is, are terrible things that you can, you can read there. And Paul says at the end, those who practice such things deserve to die. They deserve the judgment of God. Know this. It, it's not that someone who is lost can't reason or think. I don't think that's what Paul is saying. Oh, sure they can. It's just he's saying that their reason is so tainted by sin and by their sinful nature that they will never willingly submit themselves to God. Left to themselves, they will continue on this path, suppressing the truth about God until judgment but here's the good news of Jesus Christ. This is what Paul's been laying out for us, is that when you believe the Lord Jesus Christ and are saved, he begins to renew your mind. You see his connection there in chapter 12, verse, verse 3, verse 2? A renewed mind, a renewal of the mind, he says. It begins to change your thinking. It begins to change your thoughts about God. It begins to change your thoughts about your sins, about yourself, about your relationship with others, about how you live your life and why you live your life a certain way, and all of these different things. And so chapter 12, Paul says we are being transformed by the renewal of the mind. This is what salvation did. It renewed our minds. And God continues to renew our minds. As God changes your heart, your thinking, as you read and study His Word and you put it into practice, God continues that transformation in your life. Behavior begins to flow from your beliefs, and this transformation is ongoing, a lifelong process. Now, in verses 3 through 8, Paul begins to show us how this renewed mind transforms our thinking. Notice what he says in verse 3 there. He actually uses the word to think four times in the Greek language, though it's only three times in the English translation of that. But he's talking about thinking. He's talking about this renewed mind. 
Our renewed minds, he says, which are capable of, in verse 2, of discerning and approving God's will. We've been been renewed so much, we can discern this now. We we can know what is pleasing to God. These new minds must now be engaged. Christianity is not a check-your-brain-at-the-door kind of, of, of faith. It's not that at all that requires thinking, Paul says, discerning, evaluating, training even. And notice some of the ways he's reminding us here in this passage about thinking. Thinking rightly, first of all, he says, about your identity in Christ. Thinking rightly about your identity in Christ. For by, verse 3, for by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among, among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. One of the first places that the gospel impacts us is that you begin to think about yourself differently, he says. You're not thinking of yourself more highly than you ought, or something like to the effect you don't super think about yourself. Uh, It's interesting here why Paul may have been addressing this. It could have been that he was wanting to address some of the tension points in the congregation there between Jews and Gentiles, and we've referenced that several times. Maybe uh, tension between certain individuals. Maybe uh, chapter 14 later on, Paul's going to talk about um, the passing judgment on one another, some of the conflict that was in uh, over some very practical matters. But, but his point here is not difficult to understand in any culture in any time, is it? I mean, he's, say, he's saying at the very beginning that, that this, this truth of the gospel changes you. When you've come to realize that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all means you and me, it creates a different starting place from which we think about ourselves, in which we relate to one another, doesn't it? And that what can only be described as amazing grace, that God demonstrated His love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Romans 5, 8, Christ died for us. He died in our place that we might be saved, and it transforms how you see yourself. There used to be a saying Uh, Maybe it's a song, I don't know, but it talked about how the ground is level at the foot of the cross. It's so true. He's saying we're we're not to think of ourselves more highly than we should. This should be a mindset. It's our default place that it's only by God's grace and Christ that any of us are what we are and any of us are where we are. Don't think of yourself more highly than you ought to think, he says, but in a healthy way. I think Ferguson here might be right when he he says, this is what the ESV is trying to capture when it says that phrase, think of yourself with sober judgment, he says. Sober judgment. Why? Because it's so easily for us to become intoxicated with ourselves, isn't it? Intoxicated with our own interests intoxicated with our own lives and our own needs and our own successes or our own failures. And Paul, when he says, think soberly of yourself, he's reminding us it is dangerous to be intoxicated in any way, but it's especially dangerous to be intoxicated with yourself. What what happens to a person who is intoxicated? Their, Their sense of 
of decency, their sense of respectability, their sense of judgment begins to fail. They lose their moral compass. They lose their ability to think clearly. They lose their ability to walk straightly. This is the very opposite, Paul says, of what the gospel does to you, right? The gospel renews your mind. The gospel transforms your morals. The gospel sets your life in a different direction completely. In fact, it's amazing again what the gospel does. It it causes you to forget yourself altogether. You remember at the end of Romans 11 there, right before this, when he says, For from him, through him, to him, are all things to him be glory. The message of the gospel is that we have died with Christ. We were, uh, Romans 6, 4, we were buried therefore with him by baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. The very orientation of our lives has changed because of Jesus Christ. Our identity, our worth, our value is now in Christ, and it's in Christ alone. When Paul says, think soberly here, he says, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. That that word measure means standard, and I, I think that's what he's calling us to, the standard of Christ himself. Haven't you noticed that one of the beautiful traits of mature Christians is is that they have learned to forget themselves? Someone who's been walking with Christ for a long time, um, when you, you talk to them, they keep coming back to Christ. They keep coming back to the gospel. They keep coming back to his his word. It's impossible to think, to keep thinking highly of yourself when you are doing that, because the more that you realize that it's, that it's not about you, it's all about Jesus. What a beautiful picture and sign of maturity. You understand how desperately our world needs to hear the good news of Jesus today, right? We live in a world where people are seeking their identity, really grasping for their identity in anything other than God. They're grasping for it at every turn. We think about the current trends today, which is all about how your identity is wrapped up in your gender or your sexuality. And what Paul is reminding us here beautifully And wonderfully and compassionately that the only letters a person needs behind their name to find meaning and purpose and identity in this life is not a confusing list of letters that talk about preferences of sexuality, but rather the name of Jesus Christ himself. To know and be known by Him. To love and be loved by Him. This is the good news of the gospel. And it changes you. It shapes how you see yourself. It kills pride. It doesn't grow it. It moves us away from ourselves and our sin. And it gives us life and peace and joy. Paul says we need to think rightly about ourselves. Secondly, he calls us, though, to think rightly about our belonging in Christ. Our belonging in Christ. This is verses 4 and 5. He said, For, as in one body, 
We have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members one of another. One of the things the gospel teaches us is that no one is self-sufficient. And, and, and sure, salvation comes to us as individuals, right? It doesn't come to groups, but it comes to us as individuals, but it doesn't stop there. Christians belong to one another as members of one another in the body of Christ, the church. It's a beautiful analogy Paul paints for us. It reminds us of three things. First of all, our unity. He says we are part of one body, one body. He's describing a reality. He's saying, here's what happened at salvation. God united you to the body of Christ. And it is a very real unity. It is something that's been given to the church, this unity. We share the same spiritual nature with one another. We derive the same uh, spiritual life from the same source, from the vine, who is Jesus Christ. We are one in Him. And we might not always... Reflect that or live that out, but that unity is real in the church of Jesus Christ. It was the subject of Christ's prayers. John 17, Jesus prayed that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they may be one, even as we are, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, he said. Secondly, Paul's analogy reminds us of diversity, though, verse 4. In the second part of verse 4, he says, the members do not all have the same function. There's diversity that's there. Here's how F.F. Bruce describes that. He says, diversity, not uniformity, is the mark of God's handiwork. It is so in nature, it's so in grace, too, and nowhere more so than in the Christian community, the church. Here are many men and women with the most diverse kinds of parentage, environment, temperament, capacity, and not only so, but since they became Christians, they have been endowed by God with a great variety of spiritual gifts as well. Yet because and by means of that diversity, all can cooperate for the good of the whole. Which leads thirdly thirdly, this idea that there's mutuality, he says. Verse 5, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. There's unity, there's diversity, but there's this mutuality, he says. We belong to one another. It's not our body, it's his body, right? The body of Christ. And because we belong to it, we are not ours we are his we belong to him but we're also each other there's this interdependence that marks the the christian community and you you think about it again how how otherworldly this is because in the world when we're lost our mindset our thinking is is that we belong to ourselves and we think everybody else belongs to us too right we tend to think of ways of entitlement but not so for those in Christ. The gospel has not only done something radical in our relationship with God, it's done something radical in our relationships with one another, and it transforms how we think of one another, and it means that, that, that you don't belong to you, and I don't belong to me, I belong to you, and we belong to one another, it says. 
There's this interdependence. And when you begin to think about the church in, in this particular way, the beauty, the privilege of being a part of, of this kind of fellowship together. I had a conversation with uh, one of our deacons the other day, and he, he, said, uh, he, he said, you know, when I, when I became a Christian, I, I had these thoughts that this is really about me. This is about me coming to Christ. But he says, you know, I'm coming to realize that this isn't about me at all. This is about Christ and his church, he said. That's exactly right. That's exactly the mentality. When you grasp that, you're learning something of this calling to give yourself to the church, to one another. And the transformation that Paul talks about here continues and even picks up steam in your life because when you move from this posture of it's about you or this posture about protecting yourself to all of a sudden a posture of giving away yourself, giving yourself to Christ, giving yourself to the body of Christ, when you do that, it begins to do away with pride. It begins to do away with selfishness. It goes to war against your hypocrisy and any pretense that you are living. And the church becomes the beautiful people, the bride of Christ, a peculiar people from the world's perspective who are known for their love for one another. Isn't that the picture that we want for our church? Thirdly, Paul says, this expresses itself in thinking rightly about your purpose in Christ. That is why you are here. Why you're part of the body. What is your purpose? Why has God put you here? Notice how he explains it, verses 6 through 8. Having gifts. He's talking about us having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us. Let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Just as, notice he said, just as God's grace had made Paul an apostle, back up, uh, so here in verse 3, God's grace, he says, bestows different gifts on the members of Christ's body. He literally grace gifts, gifts of his grace that he's given to believers in Christ who are part of his church. Every Christian has been given at least one spiritual gift, if you call them that, a grace gift that is not for that person. The gift that you've been given is not for you. It's for this church. It's for the body of Christ. And, and the reason that no one has all of the gifts is because it reminds us of how much we need one another in the church. And Paul has several gifts here. This is not, I think, a comprehensive list. There are other lists. Uh, for example, 1 Corinthians 12 and Ephesians 4, 1 Peter has, has some. But here, Paul lists seven uh, gifts, if you will, uh, in, in the church. Uh, first, he mentions the gift of prophecy. This will take the, the most uh, time to explain. But the gift of prophecy, which I think is the gift of communicating revelation from God. So when I think of prophet, I immediately think of Old Testament prophets 
right? Of men who said, thus says the Lord. And they came and they brought the Word of God. I think of that too when I think of the apostles um, who spoke for God with authority. We have the New Testament. This is Ephesians 3.20 reminds us that the church was built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus being himself being the cornerstone. So someone who brings the revelation of God. Now, I personally believe this gift of prophecy has ceased, has ceased, at least in its original form. And the reason that it has ceased is because we already have the revelation of God now, right? We have the Bible, amen? We don't need new revelation from God. In fact, the Scripture itself warns us against that. We have the complete revelation of God Now, some people have made a distinction here with this gift that that if prophecy does exist today, that it exists uh, perhaps with a lowercase p. That whatever is prophesied today is not new revelation from God, but rather it is understanding or application from His Word that we already have, which could be what Paul means when he says, if prophecy uh, in proportion to our faith I think better translated, the faith. There's a, there's a definite article in the Greek. He's talking there, the message of Christianity that's already been given, he says. Just the gift of prophecy. Secondly, he mentions the gift of service. This is the same word that we get from our word uh, deacon from, di- diakonos. It's the ability uh, and desire to meet an unmet need. This is a person who has a gift Um, whatever the job uh, they're desiring to serve, they just want to help in any way possible. They don't have to be out front. Uh, In fact, most of the time they don't want to be out front. They're just wanting to be servants in some way. And Paul says, if this is your gift, he says, by all means, serve. Serve. Third, the gift of teaching. Uh, It's interesting, Paul mentions this gift in every list of his spiritual gifts list that he gives in the scripture. Those are the passages that I mentioned. Teachings mentioned in every one of them. This is a God-given gift to interpret and, and present and instruct and teach uh, God's, God's word clearly. Uh, the, the gift of exhortation, he mentions, or encouragement, or you might want to write the word comfort even beside that word. I, I think it describes both a private a gentle encouragement, perhaps as well as a public exhortation. Uh, someone who, who's able to exhort and encourage a wonderful gift in the body of Christ. Now notice as he goes on to talk about the gifts, uh, the gift of giving, the gift of leadership, and the gift of mercy. Notice how he shifts a bit the, the, to the attitude or disposition that we're to have as we use those gifts. He says the one who contributes, that's giving, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who acts, does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. 
The, the word uh, generosity there means simplicity, it, 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 and that is that as you give, you're, you're not doing so in such a way as expecting or desiring the limelight. You're, you're doing so with a humility. The word zeal means enthusiasm. The word cheerfulness means uh, gladness in their heart. And it seems to be that whatever, whatever Paul is saying, that whatever your gift is, by all means, use that gift and use it sincerely and use it zealously and use it with cheerfulness in the body of Christ. People have come uh, to me over the years and have asked me, how do I discover what my spiritual gift is? And I think Paul, the counsel Paul gives here is, is very uh, simple. He's, he's calling us simply to give ourselves away to one another, right? To, to see the needs that are right before your eyes in the body of Christ and then to, to step up and and, and ask God to help you use you to meet that need. And then as you do that, you'll begin to discover some things. You'll begin, begin to discover some things that you're not very good at. And you'll also begin to discover some things that you are good at. And, and that God, that, that these things will, will become clear to you as you serve, as you use these, these gifts, that, that this is how God has gifted you. And then as the pattern, the church will often come alongside you and say, you know what, You're, this, this is a gift that God has given you. And I want to affirm that gift in you. You continue to use that gift um, in serving the body of Christ. The late pastor Adrian Rogers used to say this. He used to say there's three kinds of people in the church. Uh, those who make things happen, uh, those who watch things happen, and those who don't know anything is happening at all. That's supposed to be kind of funny, you all. And, and what he's saying and what Paul is saying here is don't be that way. You, you've, you belong to the body of Christ. There's... There's a calling here to use your gift and start serving. If you're not sure at that point what that is, maybe you need to start back in verses 1 and 2. That's really the place to start, isn't it? Offer yourselves, your bodies, as living sacrifices, he says, holy and acceptable to God. Offer yourself, God, here I am. I've surrendered to you, Lord. And then secondly, offer yourself to the church. Here I am. Use me. Use me, Lord, in your body of Christ to serve others. I wonder for some of you if that means um, giving some more thoughts and consider, serious consideration to becoming a member of the church here. We ask you to do three things and, and as you process that. We ask you to attend one of our Discover classes so that you can learn more about who we are and, and what we believe. And uh, that's usually offered about once a quarter. And uh, so we, we, we ask you to come to that. Secondly, we ask you to meet with one of our staff and give your testimony of faith in Jesus Christ because we want to make sure that people who are coming into the church know the Lord Jesus Christ, that they are saved, that they're walking with him. And then thirdly, to present yourself publicly and expressing your desire 
to join our church. That's usually what happens when I stand down front here and we sing the last song. That is an opportunity if you want to receive Christ into your life, if you have something you want someone to pray for you about, if you want to talk more about church membership and start that process, I'll be standing right here during this last song, and I invite you simply to come forward and begin that, that conversation. Um, let's bow for prayer together. Lord, we thank you for, as we, as we see and study the beauty and wisdom, Lord, that you have you have laid out for us and how the gospel changes us and, and transforms our lives, transforming our mind, transforming the way we think about ourselves, think about other people, and even think about, Lord, our purpose uh, for being here. And so, Lord, thank you for laying it out so clearly. Now help us, Lord. Help us, Lord, to put these things into practice. For those that may need to make a, a public commitment uh, today to Christ, maybe to express their faith in Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord. I pray for them and give them courage today to take that step. For others, maybe to begin the process of church membership, uh, be with them, give them discernment, wisdom as well. We thank you for all that you are and all that you're doing in our hearts and lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this podcast. I'm Pastor Jason Clark. And if you don't have a church home, I want to personally invite you to First Baptist Mount Washington. We're striving to be word-centered, gospel-focused, and community-minded. Learn more about our church and our meeting times from our website, fbcmw.org.